Lord, we love you. We thank you for your power. We thank you for your love. We thank you for all that you are. And Lord, it's a pleasure to come into your presence and to sing your praises. Lord, I pray now that as we open the Bible, as we read your holy word, you would speak in power. You would move in our hearts. You would change us to make us more like your son, Jesus Christ. You would bring new life into the hearts of people who do not know you yet, Lord God. I pray you would move during this time. In Jesus' name, amen. So, as many of you know, we've been going through a sermon series in the Gospel of Matthew, and I'm just going to dive straight in this morning. So if you've got a Bible, turn to Matthew 17, and I'm going to read to you Matthew 17, verses 24 to 27. Um, did the title of my sermon come up? I can't remember what I called it. Tax, politics and fish, something like that. Yeah, there we go. Uh, let's read together Matthew chapter 17, verses 24 to 27. When they, that is Jesus and the disciples, came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, does your teacher not pay the tax? He said, yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, what do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And when he said from others, Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. However, not to give offence to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. An odd but beautiful story. And I'm looking forward to preaching about it to you. Um, but first, I do not believe that the pulpit should be a place for regular political comment. But I would like to make an exception this morning because there's a link with the passage that I've just read to you. Boris Johnson over the past few weeks has been shown to have broken the COVID rules that he himself gave to the country and he's been shown to lie about breaking those rules. It feels, doesn't it, like there's one rule for him and another rule for everybody else. There's one rule for the government and another rule for the governed. It's one rule for those people with power and another rule for the average Joes like you and me. Now, why do I mention this this morning based on this passage? Well, have a look at verses 25 to 26 where Jesus asks Peter, Simon Peter a question. From whom do the kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And Peter answers, from others. In other words, in 30 AD, nearly 2,000 years ago, it's one rule for the king's sons and it's another rule for everybody else. The king's sons don't pay tax, but everybody else does. Now, I want to flag this up because there's a, a, great, a good preacher, a great preacher called Glenn Scrivener. He's an Anglican. He's a really excellent Bible teacher. And he's written an article over the last few weeks where he said this. Historically, hypocritical leaders are not shocking. They are business as usual. And what he is arguing in this article is that Christianity changed the world. 
If you go into the Roman Empire and you ask Caesar, is it one rule for you and a different rule for everybody else? Caesar would have laughed at the question, have gone, of course it's one rule for me and one rule for everybody else. I'm the Caesar. I can do whatever I want. I can rule and reign in whatever way I please. So I set the rules, but I don't need to follow the rules because I am the emperor in Rome. And what Glenn Scrivener says is that Christianity changed the world and outrage at Boris Johnson breaking his own rules and then lying about it is a Christian response to politics. Cultures before Christ believed in the supremacy of the strong and powerful. But Christ taught that all people were created in the image of God. In Rome, leaders had the freedom to lie and to do whatever they wanted. But Christ called for truth. In secular cultures, hypocrisy is okay, even acceptable amongst leaders. But Christ always showed and stood for integrity. If you are outraged at Boris Johnson, that's because Christianity, since the time of Christ until now, has positively influenced and shaped our society so that we believe in good things. We believe in caring for those who are weak. We we believe in hating hypocrisy. And we believe in loving truth. And so I want to challenge you, if you're not a Christian, but you're feeling outrage at Boris Johnson, I want to to say something to you. Maybe it's time to press into those moral intuitions, to consider the goodness of Jesus Christ, and to see the pitfalls of an increasingly secular society where the character of our leaders doesn't seem to matter. I really believe that all that's good in our political system is because of Christianity and the influence that Christianity has upon the world. And if Christ had never come, I believe we would live in a society a bit like the Roman Empire, where an emperor could do whatever he wanted. But our political system was drawn up by Christians who believed in Christ. And so I want to encourage you, if you're not a believer in Christ, what you're feeling, outrage at our politicians right now, is a Christian emotion. Maybe it's time to explore Christ. Maybe it's time to look into what he taught and what he did and how he changed our world for the better. Now, let's actually exegete God's word, because that was a bit of political commentary. I promise not to do that very often. But let's now turn to the passage that I've read to you, and let's see what the Bible says and and speaks into our lives today. I've got three points, uh, classic Duncan sermon with three points this morning. But my first point is this. Let us observe once again the awesome power of Jesus. Have a look at verse 25. Peter has had a conversation with the collectors of the two drachma tax. And then he goes to Jesus. And before Peter can say a word, Jesus speaks first. Peter doesn't say anything to Jesus, but Jesus speaks first to Peter. And he says, what do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth take toll or tax? In other words, Jesus already knows the conversation that Peter has had, even though Jesus wasn't there. We see a powerful reminder that Jesus is the omniscient, all-knowing God. He knows the conversation that Peter has had. He knows the question that he has been asked. He knows the response that Peter gave. And you know, 
he is well acquainted with our conversations, with our lives, with our deeds, even with our thoughts. He is the all-knowing God, Jesus Christ. And he demonstrates that in verse 25 by not letting Peter speak and asking him a relevant question even before Peter has opened his mouth. But Christ's power is shown once again and even more wonderfully, I think, in verse 27. Matthew 17, 27 might be one of my favourite verses in all the Bible. It's just so bizarre and yet so brilliant. This is what Jesus says to Peter. Go to the sea, cast a hook and take up the first fish that comes up and when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel and you can take that shekel and use it to pay the tax. I want us to meditate for a moment on the power and sovereignty of Christ in that instruction. Consider the coin, the shekel that was found. It was at one time presumably in someone's pocket. And perhaps this person went for a walk along the seashore and the sovereignty of God overshadowed the coin so that it fell out of this person's pocket onto the beach. And God showed his sovereignty and his power once again, for he is the one who commands the wind and the waves. And the waves came crashing in and the shekel from the beach was taken out into the sea. God shows his power and sovereignty in directing a fish. Bizarrely and miraculously, this fish decides to eat this coin. Or maybe the fish just decides to store the coin in its mouth. Either way, it's a pretty bizarre thing for a fish to do. God showing his power over the fish of the sea. Now notice this, Jesus doesn't say to Peter, you've got to go to this sea, you've got to go to this part of the shoreline. This is the exact place where you need to cast your hook. He just says to Peter, you go to the sea and cast your hook. And so what happens when Peter goes to the sea and casts his hook? God directs this fish who has swallowed a shekel to go to exactly the right place at exactly the right time to be the first fish to grab hold of Peter's hook. God is sovereignly directing this fish and sovereignly directing Peter to fish at exactly the right place so that when he catches this very first fish, lo and behold, there is a shekel in its mouth. And you know what? The tax is called the two drachma tax um, at the beginning of the story, but it, it can also be called the half shekel tax. And so one whole shekel is the exact amount Peter needs to pay the tax for him and for Jesus himself. The power, the sovereignty, the brilliance of Christ shown in a story about tax and fish. Isn't it amazing? You thought it was just a question about taxes, but actually it was a moment for Jesus to demonstrate that even the fish obey him and submit to his authority. And over the last few chapters, over the last few weeks, as we've been going through Matthew's gospel, we have seen countless reasons to glorify and worship Christ, to give him the praise and the glory he is worthy of. In chapter 16, Peter confesses of Jesus, you are the Christ, you are the Messiah, you are the king who is coming to rule forever. You are the son of God, the divine son of God the Father. Then in chapter 17, the transfiguration happens. Jesus goes up a mountain and his face and his clothes are transformed into bright, shining white light. And Moses and Elijah appear to pay their tributes. And God the Father himself speaks from heaven saying, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. 
Then Jesus comes down the mountain and he drives out the demons. He heals the boy who's been suffering so poorly. And then Jesus directs the fish to provide the tax, to pay the two drachma tax. And in between those stories, Jesus has repeatedly promised and prophesied about his death and his resurrection from the dead. Let me say to you, brothers and sisters, never grow bored and never go weary of praising Jesus Christ. Even in two chapters of scripture, you have at least five or six bullet points and ways and reasons to glorify Jesus Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. He is the transfigured divine Son of the Father. He's the one who drives out demons. He's the one who's sovereign over fish. He's the one who loved us so much. He died on on the cross. He such power and yet he gave himself into the hands of sinful men to die on the cross that we might be forgiven and he rose again in glory. Isn't it sad that sometimes Christians, you know, don't praise Jesus and find all these reasons in scripture to store up reasons to praise him. He is worthy of our adoration. He is worthy of our praise. He is a glorious king, a wonderful savior. He is our God. Give him the praise and the glory today. Let us see once again the awesome power of Jesus Christ. Secondly, I want to make a point about money and tax in the kingdom of God. If there ever was a story to demonstrate that God doesn't need your money, this is a good story to demonstrate it, isn't it? You know, this this shekel provided by the fish to pay the tax. If God really wanted to, if God was feeling poor for some reason, he could get all the fish of the sea to spew up hundreds of pounds onto the beach if he wanted to. That's how sovereign God is. So if there was ever a story that says God doesn't need your money, this is it. God, even the fish, what was it doing with a coin in its mouth? So ridiculous. But even God can use that to provide the money that he potentially needs to do things. But the second thing I want to say about money and tax and finance is to really press into Jesus's question in verse 25. Who pays tax? The sons or everybody else? And I believe Jesus is teaching us something very important in that question, not only about the way the Caesars act, but also about the kingdom of God. So the two drachma tax was used to pay for the temple. There's a command given to Moses in Exodus chapter 30, verses 11 to 16, about a half shekel tax. Um, And in Exodus, this reads like a a one-time moment when the sons of Israel would all pay money to give to the tabernacle and the establishment of a tent in the wilderness. But over the Old Testament, this one-time moment of asking for money has become a tradition, an annual thing within the Jewish people. So they pay half a shekel. Every, um, every male of a certain age, over 20, I think, would pay half a shekel to the temple, and it would be called the temple tax or the two drachma tax. Now, Jesus' question, it seems like it's about the Roman Empire or the kings of the earth, but what Jesus is really asking is, Is it appropriate for the Son of God to pay tax to the temple 
given that the temple belongs to God, and so this is a tax to God, to his father, is it appropriate to ask Jesus himself to pay the tax? That's kind of what Jesus is asking when he asks this question. Do the kings of the earth tax their own sons? Well, no, they tax everybody else. So should the son of God, Jesus Christ, be asked to pay a tax to the temple? The implied answer is no. And his question implies another question. If Christians who believe in Jesus are children of God, should Christians, should children of God pay tax to the church? The answer is no. In church history, and even in some, some of the teaching I've heard, teaching on tithing in the church has often felt like an imposed tax upon people in church. In the Old Testament, there were instructions to Jews to offer 10% of what they had grown or what they had reared um, in their farms or however, however they're um, growing and rearing things. They were to offer in the Old Testament 10% of all they had created wealth-wise to the temple. And some people have taken that Old Testament teaching and applied it to the New Testament and encourage, perhaps even mandated. I've heard, I've heard teaching that's been on, on the verge of saying, you must do this. You must give 10% of your income to the church. Well, let me tell you this. Giving 10% of your income is never mandated in the New Testament. And if it were, I think that would be a tax, wouldn't it? It's, it w- would work exactly like income tax. 10% of your income you would give to the church. It would be an income tax. But Jesus says in verse 26, the sons are free. The sons are free. This is our belief about financial giving to the church. The sons and daughters, the children of God, are free. There is not a mandated 10% tithe that you must pay to the church, but a freedom. This means financial gifts to the church to take the gospel to this location. And financial gifts to churches around the world to take the gospel around the world do not come out by obligation, but from generosity. From our freedom, we might choose to give. Now, let me just speak personally just for a moment. Rachel and I do not feel obligated by law to give 10% of our income to the church but we seek to be selfless and generous. And in fact, we seek to grow in our generosity over time as well. Now, we don't, we're, not, we're, not, we're not being taxed of our income, but we love God. We love the church. We want to see the gospel go out in the town of Fareham. We want to see the poor loved and looked after. And we want to see the gospel go beyond Fareham to the regions around and internationally as well. And so we choose to be generous and we choose to grow in our generosity over time. In our freedom to do what we want, we choose to give as generously as we can. God does not demand tax. God does not demand that you give 10% of your income to the church The sons are free. Therefore, use your freedom to be generous like God has been generous to you. I want to continue reflecting on what it means to be free in my third point, which is this. 
If you are a Christian, know that you are a son, not a slave. Know that you are a son, not a slave. When you put your faith in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus, rushed upon you into your hearts so that he dwells with you forever. And when the Holy Spirit comes into the heart of a Christian, he cries out, Abba, Father. Do you know the reason why we believe that God is our Father is because the Holy Spirit dwells in our hearts and he is the Spirit of Christ. So just as Christ is the Son of God and cries out to his Father, so when the Spirit comes, it it teaches us that truth as well, that God in heaven is our Father. And so we can cry out to him, Abba, Father. When we pray, we pray, our Father in heaven. That's what the Holy Spirit does in our hearts, gives us a sense that we are loved, we're the beloved children of God. And one of the great privileges of the Christian faith is adoption into God's family. You know, if God was just a lord and a master and we were slaves, then Christianity would be a long list of commands. If God was just a lord and just a master, what would Christianity be? It would be instructions, commands, because, you know, that's the master-slave relationship, isn't it? The master commands and the slave does. And so if biblically we were taught that God was only a slave or master, that's all we would have in Christianity. A list of commands and we would have to do them because God is our master. And you know what? God was actually well within his rights to set up that kind of relationship with us. He's God, isn't he? He can do what he wants. I'm fascinated by some of my non-Christian friends who who think of God like he has to be nice to them. So I have non-Christian friends who say, well, if God does exist, when I stand before him in judgment, we'll just have a nice little chat and he'll work out that I'm a nice guy and then I'll be fine and go to heaven. Like They have something in the back of their head that says if God does exist, he has to be nice to them. Well, I mean, that's not true. God is within his rights to do anything, isn't he? He could be well within his rights, say, I am the master, you are my slaves, I'm going to be a cruel God to you, I'm going to tell you what to do and you must do it. That could, that could be the God of the Bible, that he's just a Lord and just a master and we have to do everything that he says. But the God of the Bible is a loving and merciful God and he made a way for us to be adopted into his family. He made a way for us to become sons and daughters of the Heavenly Father. And that way was sending his only son, Jesus Christ. Whoever believes in Jesus, whoever puts their faith in Jesus, receives forgiveness but also receives adoption into the family of God. So when we stand before God at the judgment, when he comes again to judge between the living and the dead, we stand as sons and daughters beloved by him because he is our father. You must accept Jesus. You must believe in him to receive that wonderful, wonderful privilege. Do not presume that you can stand before God and he's just going to be nice to you, but accept Christ and believe in his name. And you will be adopted into this wonderful, wonderful family. And so we need to observe Jesus, the Son of God, operating in his freedom. And in Matthew 17, he need not pay the tax. He is free. He says to Peter, the sons are free. But then he does pay the tax anyway. He is free to do what he pleases, for he is Jesus Christ, God the Son, But he uses his freedom 
to love and care for others. We see this all throughout the, love, uh, the life of Jesus Christ. He didn't need to be born in human flesh, but he loved us and so he came to earth in the Christmas story to rescue us. He didn't need to care for the the sick and the poor and those who were hurting, but he did because he used his freedom as the son of God to love and care for others. That is Jesus Christ, that's who he is. In fact, he loved others even to the point of death. Again, Jesus chose to go to the cross out of love. He used his freedom to obey the Father and to take himself to the cross. In his freedom as the Son, he chose to die because he loved others and he loves you and me. This is the model for the Christian life. This is the model for what it means to be a son or daughter of God the Father. We're free. God has rescued us. He's, given, he's adopted us into his family. He's given us an amazing inheritance that we will one day enter into the perfect world, the new heavens and the new earth. And yet Jesus uses his freedom to serve and love and care for others. Galatians 5 verse 13 gives the same instructions to us. It says this, you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love, serve one another. Do you know that um, that word for serve in Galatians 5 verse 13 has the same root as the word for slave in the New Testament? Isn't that a crazy verse, like a radical, radical verse? You were called to freedom... Use your freedom to be a slave as you love and care for others. Now, I know that word slave comes with all kinds of modern connotations. I don't want us to take on that modern idea of slavery. But what I do want us to take on board as Christians is if we love, we serve others. We're free. We've been made free by Jesus. But let us use our freedom to love and to serve others as if they were our master. This is the way of Christianity. The law was given in the Old Testament, but the law in the Old Testament enslaved us. We could not keep the commands. We rebelled against God's instruction. And so like shackles, the law locked us in, imprisoned us and trapped us. But when the time was right, Christ came to redeem us, to buy us out of slavery. And the price he paid to redeem us was his blood shed upon the cross. It was a high price that he paid in the crucifixion. He paid the price in order to redeem us, to free us from slavery. And so all who receive this by faith, all who believe in his work upon the cross, are adopted into the family, given freedom, become sons and daughters of God. You are children of God. You are called to freedom. Jesus Christ, who commands, who, sorry, yeah, Jesus Christ, who commands the fish, who commands the coins, who has sovereignty over all of creation, says this to us. You are children of God. You are called to freedom. Therefore, you're not locked into a church taxation system of giving 10%. You're free. Only use your freedom to be generous. You are not locked into a list of laws to obey. You are free. Only use your freedom to serve others in love. You are not locked into a slave-master relationship with God. You are free. Only in your freedom, live as children of God. Know that God loves you. And so use your freedom to love and serve and worship him. And because God is a good God, 
that will always be a good decision to love and serve and worship him. You thought we read a very short story about tax and fish. But I hope you can now see that this is a story about the awesome power of Jesus Christ. And it's also about the blessing of being sons and daughters, of being free, and yet using that freedom to love and serve others. Can we stand? I'm going to pray for us. And, and actually, if the band could come up and we'll sing who, I say, who you say I am again, I think that would be a good way to end the service. Um, but let me, let me pray for us. I'm going to pray this in. Because it's a short story and a slightly bizarre story, but I think it's a powerful story. At least I've, I've, felt, I've felt the power of this story uh, creeping into my heart over this week as I've prepared this sermon. So let me pray for us and then we'll sing one final song to finish. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this episode in Jesus' life where he takes a question about paying temple tax and turns it into a wonderful lesson about his awesome power, that he is sovereign over the waves, that he's sovereign over the fish, that he's able to get the tax simply by a fish opening its mouth. Lord Jesus, you are awesome in your power. And we want to praise and worship you, Lord Jesus, for who you are and for what you've done. We thank you for the stories you've read over the last few weeks. We thank you that you are the Christ. We thank you that you are the son of the living God. We thank you that you are the one who transfigured on the mountaintop and showed your glory to three of your disciples. We thank you that you are the one who drove out the demon and the boy who was suffering. We thank you that you loved us so much you went to the cross and died for us. And we thank you that death could not hold you, but you rose from the grave in power and glory. Lord Jesus, I pray our hearts would always be worshipping you for these reasons and for so many more. You are worthy of our praise and adoration. And Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you that we are not slaves, but we are sons and daughters of you. You are our Father in heaven. You have rescued us. You have adopted us into your family. And therefore, as your sons, we are free. We know the freedom of being beloved by the Heavenly Father, the eternal God. We thank you for that freedom. We praise you and glorify you because we were trapped. We were enslaved, but now in Christ we are free. But Lord, we pray we would use our freedom to serve and to love, just as Christ did. He, was, he had all the power and all the freedom to do whatever he pleased, and he chose to die on the cross for our sins. Lord, may we follow that example. I pray you give us, in the Holy Spirit now, greater love in our hearts, greater love for you, Jesus, but also a greater love for one another, that we might truly use our freedom to serve one another, to serve the people in this room, to serve the church, but also to serve those people outside the room. And Lord, I pray you would use that radical, radical countercultural attitude to transform this town and the surrounding region, Lord God. I pray even in this week ahead, there will be questions where people go, why are you loving and serving me? I, didn't, I don't deserve it. I'm not asking for it. And yet that love and service that we offer to others would start to just infiltrate into people's hearts and minds, start them to ask questions and be inquisitive about who Jesus is. Lord, I pray you would make us servants, not because we don't have freedom, but because we love to follow the example of Jesus Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to sing about being a child of God and the freedom that it brings.